0: May I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It's very nice to be here. Thank you so much for your welcome. It's been a lovely thing to spend a morning uh, with you uh, today and look forward to many uh, such occasions in the future. Uh, Having listened to uh, one or two of Andrew's previous sermons in this series, uh, um, uh, mainly on uh, tape. I kind of almost feel I should begin by saying good day, so you feel uh, at home. Uh, but uh, it's really good to be here and to share uh, in ministry in this place. I'm going to go at playing you a piece of music. I hope you're able to hear it. Uh, and I guess most of us will instantly be able to identify it. Listen carefully. Can you hear it? Does it sound familiar? It is. Many of you will probably know it by uh, the title of Prokofiev's Dance of the Nights from Romeo and Juliet, uh, but it's now known to millions of people as the theme from The Apprentice. Uh, I don't know if you know the program or want to admit to liking it in this place, uh, It's a rich cocktail of human rivalry and ambition and uh, ruthlessness. And I know that now I'm a bishop, my favourite television programme ought to be Songs of Praise. Uh, But actually, I confess, it is The Apprentice and The Apprentice You're Fired, which is the light-hearted analysis which always follows on BBC Two. Uh, There may be some fellow Apprentice fans in the congregation. So if there are, please make yourself known to me quietly after the service. (laughs) And you will know if you're watching it that we're now on week 11. uh, Five intriguing candidates in the interview round on Wednesday, which is always the most uh, intriguing. Uh, And I'm no longer sure that Kate will win, uh, but that's a conversation for afterwards. Well, reading 1 Corinthians, as I've been reading it again uh, uh, over the last few weeks, is rather like being reading something sent to the cast of The Apprentice or their Christian equivalent. What Paul calls very carefully and correctly in the beginning of the letter, the Church of God in Corinth, the Church of God in Corinth, is actually a collection, it appears, of small house churches meeting across Uh, what for those days was a big city. They did not have any buildings. They met mainly in each other's homes and those homes themselves would be quite small. Uh, We know from excavations at Corinth that the average home would probably hold no more than 10 or 12 people in their largest room and that would be quite cramped. Their largest homes could perhaps hold 30 or 40 but there were no places or times for regular assembly for the whole community. And in those scattered congregations, they mainly consisted of new Christians learning how to live their faith in a very demanding environment where they were subject to all kinds of distractions and temptations. In these different small groups, there were different leaders and teachers who themselves had differing degrees of maturity. And to make life even more complicated, from time to time, A visiting teacher would pass through Corinth and visit these house churches and they would bring a different teaching as well. So no wonder there are what Paul describes as quarrels and dissensions between these different congregations as we learn in chapter 1. No wonder that they are beginning to form different factions Uh, which is in danger of dividing Christ's church in Corinth. No wonder that they are confused about conduct in just about every area of their lives. The seed of the gospel has not yet had the time to put down deep roots in this soil. And therefore these small house churches, this one church, are deeply vulnerable to all kinds of division and doubt. Growing a church in a mission context where people know nothing of the Christian faith is a very, very difficult thing. Growing a church in any context is very hard. But growing a church in a mission context is very, very demanding. People take time to mature in their faith. As some of you may know, I was a vicar for nine years in my hometown of Halifax in the parish which contained the large council estates where my dad grew up and where my grandmother then still lived. It was then, and it is now, a very rough place with all kinds of social problems. Just after we left Ovenden, they had to close the local secondary school, The Ridings. You may remember it in the news because tragically it was unmanageable for a time. And in that place, on those estates, over nine years, we saw, by the grace of God, many, many scores of people come to a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was an amazing experience for me as a minister. Month by month, so regularly it almost became normal, but never quite, because it's always special. People would become Christians, as adults. But many of them, not all, but many came to faith with broken and fragile and chaotic lives. It was by no means unusual to find adults coming to Christ and coming into the church who had had and sometimes still had multiple relationships in adult life with complex blended families and all the legacy that brings, with very significant debt or crime in their background, with violence or abuse uh, not uncommon, with rifts or vendettas in their extended families going back years, and many, many other difficulties. And by the grace of God, we saw over time many such problems dealt with and overcome, but it took many years and much patient care for them to come to some kind of Christian maturity. The Corinthian congregations are in a similar place. They have made a good beginning. They are vulnerable to all kinds of temptations and distractions. And Paul is writing to bring them through to maturity in Christ. So they will be firmly established and go on bearing fruit for years to come. But at this moment, the time he's writing, there is still a long way to go. And that's why this letter is such a treasure chest for any church which is trying to see new Christians come to maturity. In chapter one of the letter, Paul has appealed for unity between these different congregations on the grounds of the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no other foundation uh, uh, no other starting point. And at the beginning of the letter, Paul emphasizes again and again the message of the cross. This is where we begin the foundation of our Christian life and of all Christian preaching. At the end of the letter, the focus will be on unpacking and exploring the truth of the resurrection of Jesus in chapter 15. So the whole of 1 Corinthians is bracketed by the cross at the beginning and the resurrection at the end, as indeed our Christian lives will be bracketed in that way. However much we grow, however, however mature we might become, we always need to be centred on the good news of Jesus Christ, the cross and the resurrection. There's no other centre or starting point for the Christian journey. The whole of God's wisdom is contained in the cross. But here in chapter 2, Paul is now moving on to build a bridge between this fundamental starting point and the very complex questions the Corinthian Christians are facing in their own lives and which we face in ours. Yes, Paul, we need to start with the cross and go back there. There is no ground for boasting. We see that. But, Paul, we still need answers to our questions we still not need to know what to do about marriage in our community. We still need to know about where to buy our meat, very complicated, in a city where all meat had been offered to idols. We need to know how to worship together, because it's not working for some of us. We need practical wisdom for living. We need to know how to solve some of these disputes. We need to know about how to make decisions and a way of making decisions which is based on this powerful, life-changing message of the cross. And we ourselves are no different from the Corinthian Christians in this respect. We face questions and problems and challenges in our lives. We face them in our national life and local life at the present time. How are we as Christians to respond to the collapse in confidence In the political parties and the rise of extremist, racist parties. We face them in the life of our churches. How are we to navigate forward with hope and confidence in a changing world? We face those questions in our working lives. How are we to answer the complex challenges of recession in a way that is Christian? And we face them in our family life. How are we to respond? to the challenges of friendships, of relationships, of bringing up our children. We need, and the world needs, a practical wisdom for living. Paul anticipates these questions. And the danger he wants to avoid is for the Christians to place the cross at the centre of the beginning of their Christian lives, but then to live their lives actually by the wisdom of the world around them. It was a danger for the Corinthians and a danger for us. And therefore he wants to build a bridge from the cross to these practical questions of living so that the new wisdom they have is deeply rooted and centred on the gospel. So he says at the beginning of chapter 2, among the mature we do speak wisdom. Wisdom is about good decisions and about living well. But, says Paul, this has to be a different kind of wisdom. It's not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. This is wisdom of a different order. How might we describe it? Well, I think Paul is making in this passage two essential points about the true wisdom which comes from God. And we'll explore them in a moment. But the two points taken together lead him to his conclusion right at the end of the chapter, which is a kind of summary of all that's gone before uh, and which is probably, I think, the most important verse in the chapter in that it catches the whole sense of the passage and is the foundation for the wisdom that Paul wants to explore with us. It also becomes the springboard from which he addresses with confidence all the hard questions which you will begin to look at in chapter 5 onwards. It's a tremendous statement of what it means to be a Christian in terms of our everyday living and everyday decisions. Chapter 2, verse 16. Paul's assertion that we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. It's in the present tense, not the future. We have the mind of Christ. And it's an inclusive use of the term we. So Paul is not saying by this, I, the person writing this letter, and those writing it with me, have the mind of Christ, so I'm going to tell you what to do. He says very clearly, we, you the recipients of this letter, the Church of God, and I, we have the mind of Christ. I want to suggest that you take this short part of one verse, six words in English, and learn it by heart, not a big challenge, but say it to yourself every day this week. That's a big challenge. In all the complex challenges we face, in every decision you have to make, in every choice which lies before you, we have the mind of Christ. Every time you face a difficult decision and do not know what to do, remind yourself of this great truth. We have the mind of Christ. It's deep stuff. It gives a different perspective. And here is some of what Paul means. Earlier in the chapter, he gives the Christians in Corinth two essential components of this wisdom for the mature. Two elements grounded in the gospel of the cross, which make up this incredible statement that we have the mind of Christ. The first is the truth in verses 7 to 10. Essentially, it is the truth that for the Christian, wisdom is not something we figure out for ourselves. Wisdom is something which God has revealed which God has made known. This wisdom is not something you can work out by looking at a complex problem. You can only receive it and understand it as a gift. It's not about cramming your head with knowledge or being instructed in obscure mysteries. It's about receiving a gift from God. You may know the verse from James, if anyone is lacking in wisdom, writes James, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given you. It's the same principle here. Wisdom is a gift from God. If a Christian does not know what to do, our first response should not be to enroll on a course or take instruction from someone else. All those things can be helpful. But our first response, if we lack wisdom, should be to ask God who gives generously. And Paul draws attention to the particular gift of God in giving us wisdom in this chapter as the gift of perspective, the broad horizon of God's love. This is where we have the advantage over those called here the rulers of this age, the powers around us. We know, because God has revealed it to us, that the cross of Jesus Christ is the centre of God's purposes and the centre of what God has revealed. We know because God has revealed this in Jesus that the world we have is not all we have to look forward to. We know because God has revealed this in Jesus that all that is wrong in our world will be set right one day, that God's kingdom will come, that we are called to deeper and better and everlasting life in Christ. We know, because God has revealed this in Jesus, that the sufferings of this present world, hard though they may be, are not worth comparing with the glory which is to be revealed and which is to come. That perspective is essential if we are to live wisely and well. To make good decisions and good choices We must be able to set our own lives within the framework of eternity and the framework of the gospel. We need to see ourselves in the purposes of God. When you go to a PCC meeting, you may think you are meeting with your friends and neighbours to determine the colour of the buckets in the church hall. But in the perspective of eternity, you are shaping the life and mission of the people of God in this place, in this generation, in every decision you make. To have that eternal perspective is the first part of what it means to have the mind of Christ. One of the vital roles of public worship in the Christian life the vital role when we meet together is to reset for us, Sunday by Sunday, the perspective of eternity in our lives. All too often, we lose from Sunday to Sunday the story and scope of salvation during our day-to-day lives. And as we come together, Sundays or during the week, we reset the perspective of eternity through our songs, through our engagement with God's word, in the sacraments of baptism and communion, which tell the story for us again in our prayer for the world. And one of the vital tests of Christian worship is that the horizons of our worship should be broad and deep so that our worship can give a frame to our lives and to our decision-making and to our wise living. We have the mind of Christ. The first component in this bold and life-changing statement is that wisdom is revealed by God, and God has revealed in the cross of Jesus the plan and purposes of the ages. We see where we fit in. If you want to follow that through, uh, then look again at the first chapter of Ephesians where that perspective is unpacked at great length. When we live in that revealed perspective, we will live wisely and well. In verse 10, Paul moves on now to the second component, which makes up this remarkable statement. We have the revealed perspective of eternity, but we also have been given the inestimable treasure of the gift of the Spirit of God to dwell within us. How wonderful to be reading these words on Pentecost Sunday. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, verse 12. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given. Our wisdom is born from the perspective that God gives us of our lives and our world, but more wonderful still is that because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, God gives to each of us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can have the Spirit within us as a guide and a witness to good living, steering us from within, giving us the strength slowly to be changed, to become more like Christ and to live wisely. And this is what makes the Christian community different. God has given us his Spirit. And God has set his Spirit not within the most important people, so-called, not within the clever people only, not even within the good people, but God has set his Spirit within all God's people to lead us into truth, to help us grow in wisdom, and to transform us from within. How amazing. How profound. How humbling. God does not simply give you and I a new beginning, but gifts us with his own Spirit, poured out generously on each of us, so that we can learn and grow in the way of Christ. Listen to these remarkable promises from John's Gospel, chapter 16. I have much more to say to you, says Jesus, more than you can now bear. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and will tell you what is yet to come. The Spirit of God is given so that we might grow in wisdom and godly living and Christian maturity, which is genuinely Christian wisdom grounded in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. God has revealed his perspective and his purposes and given us his spirit. And that is why Paul is able to say this incredible truth, we have the mind of Christ. We're almost there. But let's take just a moment to reflect on the difference these truths ought to make to our everyday lives, and the decisions we face in our workplace, in our public life, in our families, and in our churches. These truths are so remarkable that every decision, every issue, every crossroads, every dilemma becomes a way to deepen our relationship with God. The question for the Christian is no longer what shall I do? It becomes Lord What do you want me to do? What is your wisdom on this? What shall I do in the perspective of the gospel? How is the Spirit guiding and leading us in the present moment? And all too often in the press of our lives, we forget both the perspective and the presence of the Spirit. In my previous work that Paul was asking me about with the National Fresh Expressions team, we were given in that team a wonderful gift by Church Army, of somebody to work in the team and to watch over our prayer life. His name is Colin Brown. Until recently, he lived in Sheffield, so some of you may know him. Colin helped us pray together, and he made sure people were praying for us, both of which were a vital part of his work. But we also asked him to do something else, aware of the danger that in many, even Christian organizations and churches, we squeeze out God in our decision-making. The work we were doing, we believed, was critical for the mission of the church, and it was difficult. We wanted to make sure that every decision we made was the best decision it could be. And so we gave Colin the instruction that at any time in any of our team meetings, he could stop the meeting completely. He had a kind of button he could press to do two things. The first was to ask the question, what is God doing and saying in all of this conversation we're having? Where is God here? And where is God's way? And the second was to lead us in prayer. And hardly a meeting went by. We used to spend a day together every month. Hardly a meeting went by without Colin doing both of those things. And as a result, I think we made better decisions and kept in step with what the Spirit was doing. And I commend the practice to those who lead Christian teams. As individual disciples, all of us, I guess, could do more to pay attention to the perspective of the gospel and the indwelling witness of the Spirit. I know that in my present work, that not a day will go by when I do not need those two gifts of perspective and indwelling wisdom in the decisions I will need to take. And not a day goes by when I do not need to place my hand in the strong hand of my Father in heaven and look to him for guidance and a way forward. And the dilemmas and responsibilities you face will be similar. We have been given in the Gospel such gifts and such treasure. We need to remember them and walk with them daily in every decision we face. So Paul makes at the end of this chapter A bold claim, which is the foundation of all that follows in the letter. Learn it, mark it, heed it, inwardly digest this great and life-changing truth. And practice it each day of your life. We have the mind of Christ. Amen.